Welcome to Life Camera Action, a lifestyle podcast for filmmakers, writers, and other creatives. I'm your host, Victoria Rook, filmmaker and brand architect, and over the last several years, I've been helping creative entrepreneurs discover their brand voice, design their brand experience, and develop the ultimate creative lifestyle that allows them to live into their passions. Life Camera Action is all about empowering you with best business practices, industry tips, and creative mindsets so that you can accelerate your success in your craft. Today, my guest Vicki and I will be talking about how to set your sound up for success during production in order to make the sound editing process a seamless experience with a great end result. Vicki Sampson is a writer, director, film, and sound editor who has worked on over 200 films as a supervising sound editor for feature films since 1973. She is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, also known as the Oscars, and Alliance of Women Directors. She has directed over seven short films, 15 commercials, and is attached to direct the upcoming feature film titled Revolutionist in the fall of 2021, starring Virginia Madsen. You can explore more about her career in the award-winning feature documentary called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. So if you want a life filled with success, creativity, and cinematic sound, then stay tuned. Vicki Sampson, welcome to the show. How are you? I am well. How are you? <laughs> I am doing so good. I'm I'm truly, truly honored to have you on because the more I've gotten to learn about you and your career, the more I love you. I just, you have made some of my all-time favorite movies and I am just, it is so cool. It's a dream come true to be able to talk to you about some of this stuff um, and to hear your experience in and some of my favorite movies and the things that you got to do to contribute to the film overall um so things like star wars and I, the roxbury even we quote that movie all the time van helsing and of course my all-time favorite is pirates of the caribbean and anybody who knows me at all knows that that is a really big deal um because as i've mentioned before and i think that you were there when, when i was talking about this that was one of the things that um really sparked my desire to to get into filmmaking in the first place because I loved I loved the story I loved the character development and all that right um, but there is a line that Jack Sparrow says where you know the Black Pearl is coming into the harbor and someone's like oh my gosh the Black Pearl I, you know she doesn't leave any survivors and Jack Sparrow's like no survivors where do the stories come from I wonder and that as I watched that I was like it's you know eight or nine years old and my mind was blown and I was like that is such a great line and so that was one of the things that inspired me to you know I really wanted to be someone who was making movies where people would go like oh my gosh that that dialogue or that line or that quote is just incredible and and so that was one of the things that really inspired me to get into filmmaking because I I love those like mind-blowing moments of like oh my gosh that was such a great line so I'm just so excited to dive into it with you and hear you know your experience with being in the sound department with some of those and then some of your your directing and writing as well sure yeah you never know what line in a movie is going to uh spark um something in somebody I mean as a filmmaker myself mm -hmm. That's what I love about filmmaking and directing and writing is like when people get attached to a line of dialogue uh, and, and it generates a feeling, you know, and you never mm -hmm. know. I mean, there's I was talking with my students yesterday, Cal State L.A. students that I teach, and they said, you know, we were talking about bad movies, like what makes a bad movie bad? And then there's some bad movies that are good, bad movies, like they're bad movies, but they're good, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> like mm -hmm. Sharknado or something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the first one that came to my head. <laughs> right. But I mean, nobody sets out to make a bad movie as far as I know. Um, and what mm -hmm. makes the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. So we're having a very interesting discussion about that because there are some bad, bad movies, but then there's some bad, good movies. Yeah. What, what is your opinion on that? What do you think makes a, a good or bad movie? What's that deciding factor? Hmm. I think um, a good movie is something that makes you feel satisfied at the end of it. Either if it makes you laugh or it makes you cry, it, it affects you some way. Maybe it's just an adventure and you're on a vicarious, you know, journey with that character or those characters. And um, me personally, I don't like horror films. Th thrillers are okay, but I, I just, I don't like, I don't like working on them. I don't like seeing them. So the few that I have worked on, I look at them once and that's about it because those images stay in your mind forever. I mean, and that's why I never let my daughters watch bad, you know, horror movies or anything like that. I have friends who let their kids watch horror movies. And I said, why do you do that? You know? And they said, oh, they know they're not real. I said, no, but the images, they, they, they stay in your mind and they stay on your with brain. You. And when you're working on a film and you see things over and over and over, um, it, it does affect, I think it affects you. So I just want to put goodness out into the world. You know, in the movies that I write and direct or just direct, I, I gener I generally like to gravitate, that's the word I was looking for, gravitate towards movies that, um, you know, propel goodness in the world, you know, put out goodness or inspiration or kindness or laughter or something like that. So that's what, I, you know, I like movies about underdogs winning, you know, uh, kids that were bullied that now are, are healed of bullies, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, and I think that that's important. I mean, to me, film is the most powerful medium because you you have the visual aspect and you have the audio, but then you also have the music, which really you know taps into the mm -hmm. emotional space and and it's, all the combination of all those things. I think creates such a powerful dynamic. It's like you can do so much with it, and so I do think that as as filmmakers, there is a sense of responsibility that we need to take on into, you know, what are we putting out into the world? I and mean, what are we creating? What are we, what are the messages and the pieces of culture that we're contributing to? Yeah. And I think the, the main thing that makes a good movie good is, you know, is it a good story? Does it mm -hmm. tell, does it tell a story? I mean, you can have the best um, visual effects and computer generated things and the best sound, but if the story isn't there, then you, I don't think you have much. And we've all seen movies like that. Um, in the world, you know, that had great visual effects and cinematography and all that stuff, but they didn't, they didn't get the story right. And uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, a very old movie called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Hmm. Have you ever seen that? No. It's, it's about a tribe in Africa and a Coke bottle like drops out of the air and they think it's like God, you know, oh, funny. <laughs> like it falls out of an airplane or something. I, it's yeah. been so long since I've seen it, but like the worst sound ever, you know, everything's <laughs> dubbed in later. Well, and you would things. know, yeah. well, you would know too. Anybody would know that it's bad, but it's like, it, it, it proves that it doesn't matter. All the technical stuff we spend so much time on, it doesn't matter if the story is good. If you buy into the story, you know, then you're, you're a part of the film itself. You know, it's not just like you're, you know, watching something and you're a, an observer. 
You know, the whole point of sound and images is to draw you in and make you feel like you're that character, you're Wonder Woman, you're, you know, Jack Sparrow. And, um, you know, it it goes beyond gender. You know, I'm sure you felt like I'm going to be Jack Sparrow, you know. (laughs) <laughs> um, I kind of wanted more to walk down the aisle with Jack Sparrow, but, well, but close enough. <laughs> there, there's that. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we want to get lost in the characters. We want to suspend our disbelief. You know, we want to be involved and invested in the film. And once you're invested in it, then it's almost like the film could do no wrong as long as it has like a beginning, a middle and end all the classic story things that we, we want, you know, we want to, if it's a mystery, we want to be like a little bit ahead of the, you know, we want to try to solve it with them, you know, and then we like being fooled when it's not that it's like, Ooh, what else is it? You know? So I think that's what makes um, a good, a good movie is something that's satisfying throughout the experience of watching it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Someone who, I mean, my husband is notorious at trying to guess the endings of movies and where it's headed. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I don't, I don't, when I'm watching a movie, I think a lot about the creation of it. So I think big picture from that, or I'm really dialed into whatever the character is doing and like looking at the details. I don't quite ever hit that middle range where I'm thinking about what's happening next. So it's really the production side or really, really into it. He likes to play in that, that middle zone where it's like big enough picture that you're trying to predict the next steps but not so far out that you're, you know, he's still in the movie, whereas I kind of can separate from the movie a bit and, and pay attention to how things are operating and all of that. Mm. Um, and he, it's funny because he's quite practiced at it in the sense that he's very spot on. I'm always shocked. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's this, this, the turn it's going to take. And lo and behold, most of the time he is actually quite accurate. It's really funny. Well, you, then you guys should watch my, my latest short film reflections um, to Ooh, yeah. see if he can guess what's going on. Okay. I, I accept that challenge. He's quite talented at that. And I I like I like when I'm able to follow the story enough and, and still be surprised. So I don't know if I like guessing um it as much as a habit, you know. Um but what what is funny is my my dad, for example, he does not like to have any sort of spoilers. I actually really enjoy spoilers like going into it. Um, if I if I can get a hold of some, but in the movie, I don't think I, I when I'm experiencing it for the first time, I don't know if I enjoy uh, trying to to guess it as much as Justin does. But my dad, however, he doesn't want to know. He doesn't like anything being broken. That illusion needs to stay completely intact. So he doesn't want to know what's going to happen. Uh, we do not watch trailers. I watch trailers. But when when we're watching like a movie or something, you see the, the trailers before the movie comes on. My dad will either leave or skip through them. Like he doesn't want to know anything. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to know what that main actor was in and why that person looks so familiar. He wants the illusion to stay perfectly intact. And so it, it's so funny the way you know everybody experiences movies in such uh, you know different variety of ways. It's 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 very interesting to see how it uh, impacts and and affects the way we think. I guess you know how we process that. Yeah, it's like finding out who the voices are in an animated feature. I, I don't like that. I don't want to know that it's, you know, some he doesn't famous either. person. Uh, yeah. I love your dad. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, even when I work on a film as, as a sound editor, I watch the movie as an audience member would. I don't sit there going, Hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder how much ADR there's going to be. And that, uh, you know, I don't get technical. I just want to absorb the movie in the way it. the director yeah. intended it. Um, and, uh, then I can make informed decisions because you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. 
So my mm -hmm. first impression of the movie as an audience member is to gain information from how an audience would see it first time through, no rewind, no nothing. So it's like if I don't hear a line of dialogue clearly, I kind of just store it in my brain, you know, so that when I go back and start working on it, I go, oh, yeah, I remember when I saw it in the theater, I didn't know what that guy was saying. And I'll put that down mm -hmm. on, on an ADR sheet, and ADR is automated dialogue replacement. And it's when we bring actors in to recreate dialogue that's been, you know, either covered with bad sound or a generator or wind machines or just no a noise floor, you know? Yeah. So, so is that kind of your process then? You, um, you watch the movie first as really trying to stay as an audience member as much as you can. And then the things that kind of stick out, you just jot them down and then you come back later and start playing with it that way. I don't even jot them down because that's interrupting the movie watching experience. I just kind of make a, a little mental no, You know, I'll, I'll, rec I'll oh, recognize okay, it. it later when I go back and start frame dealing with each little thing as the technical part of it. So, uh, yeah, I just, it's a little mental note, like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, that it didn't work, or I didn't hear it. So then I'll suggest to the director, I'll say, you know, when I first saw the movie, I didn't understand that line of dialogue, so I put it down on the ADR sheet as a recommend, because, and then the director will say sometimes, like, oh, well, I understand it. It's fine. You know, it's like, well, you may have written it. You shot it. You, you, you've been sitting in an editing room with it for three months. You know every nuance of the phrase that the person says. But an audience just sitting there first time through, they may not get it. And then they'll turn to who they're with and say, what did he say? Yeah, so that's what happens. And, and a lot of times then they'll go ahead and, and replace the dialogue so, I, yeah, so that's my process. I like to watch the film, usually in a theater when we did that, um, you know, with uh, the director, the film editor, whoever else is involved, the composer sometimes. And we all have a discussion about the soundscape of the film and, um, mm -hmm. and what should be done here and there. Like, is the sequence going to be music heavy or is it going to be effects heavy? Is it going to be a combination of both? Um, and uh, that's called a spotting session. And from that session, then we all break out into our little departments and start working on the film. You know, the goal of, of being on, on the set or a location is to get the cleanest, clearest dialogue recording as possible. Because you can always add sounds later. You can't always take them away. There's no, there's no magic button on the, on the mix panel that takes out an airplane that's going through your, West, your Western movie. Right. You know? right. Yeah. <laughs> So, so if there's an airplane and you're shooting a Western, you know, you're going to have to either ADR it or wait for the plane to pass and take another take. Mm -hmm. But sound notoriously has been sort of the, the low person on the totem pole, so to speak. Oh, interesting. And yeah, and it's, uh, it's taken a lot to raise up our uh, acknowledgement and appreciation of sound, even though George Lucas says sound is 50% of the movie, yeah, you know, there's... Think. There's a lot of people who just, and I know how it is, you know, on the set. You, you're thinking of so many things as a director, and there's so many decisions to be made. It's like sound is the last thing you think about, even for me, who's got so much experience, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the thing that you're going to be living with for the next year while you're editing, or three yeah. months, or whatever it is. And then you're going to hear all the problems that you didn't take care of on the set. So, Part of my uh, my my desire to teach, and I've been teaching since '92, 
Oh, wow. Because I, I want, you know, at UCLA and then at, at a place called Video Symphony, because uh, I wanted to teach filmmakers how to get the most bang for their sound buck, so to speak. And, um, you know, like fix things on the set. Don't fix them in post. Don't wait to fix them in post when you could have prevented the sound problem the first place. So that's kind of, uh, and I have, I have handouts that people can reach out to me if they want them. There's a great one called a letter from your sound department, which goes through. Yeah. I can imagine what that has. (laughs) Well, it's, it's got a lot of really great information. Like, uh, you know, a, I mean, some of it is, is, uh, you know, you, you think of automatically or you should like, don't aim your microphone towards the generator, you know, aim it away. You know, when you go to a location, don't just see the frame that you're looking at, you know, list, close your eyes and listen to what's there. Mm-hmm. You know, are you over an airplane flight path? Uh, does a school get out at three o'clock every afternoon and kids flood the street? Yeah. You know, or is it near a fire station? You know, all these things. So it's not just the visuals because um, I even think sound is more than 50% because visuals is just the frame, you know, mm-hmm. sound is everything else, the environment, the, um, the, the background, the, you know, it creates the world. Like think about the movie Fifth Element, which I, I worked on. And, um, you know, you can't go out and re- record space traffic. There's no right. space traffic to record. So all of that has to be recreated and layered and uh, believable, you know, so that people are feeling in that world. No matter if the movie makes sense or not, you know, it's like, this is the world we're in. We're out in space. And then, you know, of course there's the space doesn't make a sound people, you know, or space does make a sound. So um, yeah. And that's the world we're we're creating. So it has to be believable. It has to be, um, uh, you know, it has to help suspend your disbelief in that, you know, you're watching a highly manipulated uh, piece of art. You know, we want you to see what we want you to see when we want you to see it, we want you to hear what we want you to hear when you're supposed to hear it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in the real world, our hearing is very selective. You know, we can tune out things like when you're in a, a bar and you're talking to a friend and the music's really loud and the crowd, you know, when people could go to bars, um, yeah. you know, the crowd is really loud. The music's really loud, but you're trying to concentrate. You're watching your friend's mouth move. You're you're tuning into his or her words and all that other sound disappears in your mind. But to do that in a movie, we have to manipulate all of that sound and lower the background sounds and accentuate the person talking. And, um, you know, so we're, we're, and even a reality show, so-called reality or documentary is still Mm -hmm. highly manipulated. You know, it's like where, where we put the camera, how we shoot the angle, how we tell the story, what sounds are you hearing? You know, even if it's real. <laughs> yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. So what are some other ways that someone can, uh, I guess, vet their location um, before they start shooting to make sure, you know, like this is going to be a pretty secure location sound wise. Just go there at various times of the day. And um, oh, that's a good tip. You know, see what the lighting looks like. I mean that people do that for lighting, but Go mm-hmm. there at different times of the day. Maybe there's a big traffic pattern in the mornings or afternoons or school gets out or airplanes or whatever is going on. You know, maybe when the mailman walks around the neighborhood, a lot of dogs bark. I don't know. You know, but yeah. just go there and listen to it. The same with uh, costuming. You know, we have a saying that um, 
cotton is your friend and silk is your enemy because silk is very noisy on microphones and such and cotton is very forgiving. Um, you know, don't have people dressed in leather unless that's, unless you have like a faux leather, or you have a way to soften. I mean, there are, there are ways and customers know yeah. how to, they know how to deal with that, but costuming is a big thing too. Uh, when, when I worked on uh, Prince of Tides, you know, with Barbara Streisand, they had her in a leather skirt sitting on a leather couch in her psychiatrist's office. Now, mm-hmm. we don't want Barbara Streisand to sound like she's farting every time she moves, <laughs> <laughs> which is what it sounded like, leather on leather, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's things that you just want to be aware of. If you're only shooting a shot that's like a medium, a medium shot um, and your character's wearing really clicky heels... Um, and we don't ever see their shoes, you put little booties on them. Don't let them, you know, click around because, again, anything that's singular, we could add sounds to. We can add the clicky of, of footsteps, but we control the levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they're, when, you don't, when they're not interfering with the main dialogue, then you can add, you can add other sounds, but you can't take them away. <laughs> right. No, those are some really good tips. I mean, costuming is a is a big one. My um my career is so weird in the sense that I started all of my filmmaking experience really began with um business stuff because my my dad has a marketing advertising agency and so that's where I kind of got my start and so I was the one that ended up scripting out all the the promo videos and the commercials and the the launch videos and you know all those the, the trailers the, the sizzle reels and I would script it and then direct it and one of the hard lessons I learned um but got pretty, pretty good at, at catching would be things, you know, they, they're not actors. We didn't have any sort of sound department on. Um, so they would be coming in, you know, the entrepreneur, the business owner would be coming in with something that they just thought looked pretty. Right. But then, you know, I'd be sitting there and you can hear the, you know, their bangles or their earrings are really like jingly. And, um, as you said, like the different fabrics that make noises. And it was so interesting to, um, to learn it from from that perspective, and so so it was yeah, it was just it was a cool experience because as what you're saying, like all these little details really do. It's so easy to overlook, and they affect the sound and the experience overall so much. Mm-hmm. Well, let's in uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, we had a real problem with his uh, his jewelry that was in his dreadlocks. I'm and sure the clanging yeah. of all that stuff. It was it was crazy to try to get that sound out and. Nowadays, we have even more tools in within Pro Tools, which is the digital audio workstation that we use. There's a lot of really great programs like Isotope that can find uh, a hum in a background and give you like a spectrograph of it. And you can see it and you kind of draw it out and, and erase it essentially without it affecting the dialogue, wow. you know, the voice. That's really yeah, cool. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing what you can do. You still can't take out anything cyclical like an airplane because it kind of comes in and goes out, you know. So it's not just a, anything steady we can kind of attack pretty easily. But they're coming up with all kinds of um, tools nowadays for things. Um, when I worked on the movie Speed, uh, I was the ADR supervisor, and uh, the director, Jan DeBont, had been a – cinematographer and this was his first directing job so he was very visual and he wanted to shoot all the bus scenes on 
the moving bus. Like he didn't want the bus towed by a camera truck. Oh, got it. He wanted the bus to actually be driving, but they were only driving from first to second gear, which is very cyclical, you know, uh, uh, like that. And the noise floor, when I talk about a noise floor, it's like uh, if, if your voice is above whatever noise is in the background, um, then you have a good signal to noise ratio. But in that case, the bus noise was almost right up underneath the voice. So it was competing a lot to be able to hear the voice clearly. And they all told him, you know, you're going to have to ADR the whole scene on the bus if you want to shoot on a moving bus. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, he didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> and and so uh, the time came and we had to redo all the dialogue on the bus scene um, with Keanu, wow. with Sandra Bullock, all the all the actors actors, uh, Luis Guzman, all the other actors that are on the bus and including the background actors that were on the bus for their reactions, everything had to be replaced. And that was my job. And this was before we went to digital. So everything had to be shot within a frame or two of, of good sync with good projection, with good volume, good performance, all those things. And Keanu was uh, working up in Canada on Johnny Mnemonic at the time so he was shooting that very heavy physical movie Monday through Friday, and then he was ADRing on a soundstage on speed from you know Saturday uh, Saturday and Sunday, and and by the third weekend that we went up there, he literally picked up a chair and threw it through the wall. <laughs> it's a frustrating process. I mean, he was professional about it, you know, but it it, yeah. it, it wears on you, especially with having no days off from your current movie and your past movie. So. Yeah. But I was well, really proud of, yeah, I was really proud of the job that um, that I did on that because uh, it got a lot of notice from people who were like, "That's you, that's ADR. It doesn't look like ADR." I said, "That's the point. You know, you have yeah. to keep fooling people and you know, doing breathing and um, you know, all the little extra things that you may not hear in production. Like if you go, you know, if you take a breath and your shoulders go up, you know, you." Um, in ADR, if if you don't have it there, it looks like it's missing or it doesn't feel real. So I always make sure to try to get uh, the br the breathing done. And Keanu, since they all knew they had to ADR, there was no choice to save the production sound. Um, he made himself like more manly and authoritative, you know, because <laughs> people thought of him as like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know, kind of character. Uh -huh. And so he was able to... Uh, take the authority back and be the hero. So he kind of lowered his voice a little bit and, you know, and, and, and the, I, I play the before and the after to my classes so they can hear the difference of just raw production track with then, then with all the ADR and music and sound effects and backgrounds. Because the thing is, if you try to save production, you still have to add more sound effects on top of it, like all the bus sounds and all the other sounds. So then it gets even muddier and, harder to understand. And, um, but there are some directors who just don't believe that you should try to accommodate an audience's understanding of dialogue. Like, like the Christopher Nolan is notorious for that. Um, the black, you know, what was it? The, the one with Bane that had the mask over his face. Oh, Batman. Got yeah. It. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he didn't care if people couldn't hear it or not. And, you know, it was very frustrating movie. I even heard, just regular audience members complaining about it, not not just sound people, you know. And I talked to my friend, the sound guy, I said, 
you know, what happened? Why, why didn't he, he said he, they wouldn't let us fix it. You know, he, he liked it that way. It's like he sounded the same where there's talking like, you know, through, through the mask to a person two feet in front of him or to a mass, you know, audience of 50,000 people. He sounded the same and not intelligibility wise. <laughs> yeah. Got it. How do you get it um, so precise in the sense that, you know, as an actor, they're just, they're saying their lines, they're delivering their lines and then to get it like perfectly on time. Like how do you help coach them through that process? Like how, how do you get well, it so in sync? Uh, there's a, there's a couple ways. I mean, the actor is comes to the stage. We've, we've already programmed the line so that the actor gets these beeps that goes beep, 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 talk. So it's a rhythmic thing. And once they get to that imaginary fourth beep, they say their line and they rehearse it a couple times. They, they're seeing themselves on the screen. They're hearing the beeps. There's, you know, it takes them, usually a couple takes to kind of get back into their voice pattern because they haven't, they haven't heard it Mm -hmm. as much as we've heard it over and over editing wise. So they're just getting used to it. And some of them are amazing. Like, how did I say that so fast? (laughs) Or what was I thinking there? So, you know, they take a little bit to get back into character and, and to, to give the performance, the, um, the projection level, you know, the volume, two different things. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and the sync. So I know that, um, I can get certain things into sync a lot easier. So if their performance is there and the director likes that take, I'll make a note to myself, like, you know, fix sync or, I mean, that's obvious to me, but if I'm writing notes for somebody else to edit it, I'll, I'll write down, like, use this one if you can to fix sync. But I've gone in and like massaged little, like in Pro Tools, you can expand and, and compress um, syllables and words without affecting the uh, speech, like it doesn't get artifacty. And you can stretch it a little. I've done just syllables or you know consonants, um, just to stretch a part of it because you can see the waveform of the production track, the production recording, which we always use as a guide track. So you see all the little waveforms, um, you know, little squiggly lines up and down. I'm doing this visually, but you guys can't see me. So, um, (laughs) um, and then I just match all the, all the words from the ADR line to the production track. And then I listen to the tempo because your ear will, um, will forgive. I mean, your eye will forgive sync if your ear has the rhythm of the line. But if you make the line technically rhythmically in sync with the production and it has these weird stuttery things on it, you know, it's not going to sound right. It might, it might look okay, but you're, you won't, you won't like it. So our, we always go for rhythm more than sync, but ideally you have rhythm and sync and projection and level and performance all in one take. And there's an interesting phenomenon that happens on the ADR stage. When all of those elements come together, everybody gets goosebumps at the same time. It's really weird. Like on, on speed, there was a line that Keanu, that the character Jack says, where he realizes that the bad guy can see in the bus somehow, because and, and he's because of Sandra Bullock's uh, coat that says Arizona Wildcats is on the back of the chair, and the guy mentions Arizona Wildcats, so so Jack says Arizona Wildcats, just two words, right? And I found one, two, or three word sentences are the really hardest to 
to get because there's all this subtext that has to go into the line. Like imagine saying, I love you with hatred, with contempt, with love, with lust. You know, I mean, you could say it a million ways, but it's only three words, right? So this Arizona Wildcat line, uh, it's the point in the movie where he realizes, oh, the guy can see in. So he's trying to put all that subtext into Arizona Wildcats, you know, and we did 26 takes on like Sunday night, Sunday night. None of them seemed to work well. We leave for the week. We fly back up to Canada on Friday night. We loop Saturday and Sunday again. He does another 25 takes. And finally, one take, we all went, that was the take, you know, because we get goosebumps. And, you know, and, and it's just like you feel it in the room. Like it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is that is so so cool um and i'm sure that probably makes life a little bit easy in the sense that when you have that feeling there's some there's there's some trust and security that you can have in that because there's you know it's a it's a trained feeling it's you know it means it's on you're on to something there right well and it's also you know the goal of of getting good sound is not to show off your wonderful sound effects and sound design it's all there to support the story that you're trying to tell. And if people are taken out of the movie because they see something out of sync or out of rhythm, they know it's an ADR line. They, they, they can tell that something's not right. It, it disturbs you on a subconscious level. You know, it might even be a conscious level in, in some cases, but on a subconscious level, like we take out all these little like clicks and pops that might come from production uh, somebody drops something off stage and, you know, you have, you, you don't want to leave it there because it, it shows people that, it, oh, you're, remember, you're watching a movie. This isn't real. I mean, we all know that. It's like, watch, it's like watching a magician. You know that they're fooling you, but you have so much fun watching them do that to you. You know, it's, it's, it's like that kind of feeling. So, um, I mean, that's part of the, the magic of it. And I, um, I worked with my mom, Kay Rose, who was the first woman to win an Oscar for sound editing. That is so cool. Um, on the movie The River uh, back in 1984. And, um, you know, and that was a great, a great experience working with her on many famous movies. We worked on The Rose, on Golden Pond, For the Boys, a lot of Mark Rydell films. And he's one of my favorite uh, directors that I've worked with sound-wise and who taught me a lot about mm. directing. Um and one of the great hints that I learned was uh, if you say and action. So you have that little bit of space in there that everybody on the set kind of takes a collective breath and they all hold still. So you have all the bodies in the room, you know, that are inherent to that particular scene and take. And you can that's like gold. That's like mining for gold is that little bit of ambient background that has no dialogue and no movement. And you can use that to fix other things in that scene, like take out little pops and clicks or even fill for an ADR line. Because you, if you do an ADR line, you have to you have to put the background ambient sound that's before and after it. You have to put that in there because all sound comes out of a center channel of the theater. And so if you take out that sound, you're also taking out that ambient. So you have to have ambience there mm -hmm. to put the ADR line on top of. So that it sounds natural because everything is all about, you know, sounding real and natural and, you know, as if it was supposed to be there all the time. Not that you notice it. Yeah. Right. As someone who's sitting in the, the theater and you're watching this movie, how much how much of that is actually ADR? Uh, it depends on the type of movie. I mean, a, a, a drama or um, 
you know, what we call it, like a dialogue driven movie, maybe, um, maybe 30% of, of it is ADR, but there's, there's different parts of ADR because there's also group ADR, which is all the background actors in a scene that are instructed not to talk mm-hmm. during a scene so that the main actor's voice can get recorded properly. So that, that, that a, a group of improv actors get together and they recreate all the background, like restaurants, airports, you know, wherever you see a big group of people um, on the set, they're not talking. They're just mouthing words. You know, they're just, yeah. They're just mouthing yeah, words. Oh just, my gosh, that's so funny. You know, they're, I'm, I'm moving my lips for those who can't see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> demonstration. Oh, that's really interesting. So because of that, you know, like any movie that has a lot of visual effects, CGI stuff, um, wind or rain machines, um, they're going to have a lot of ADR, maybe, maybe 75 to 80% ADR. So it depends on the kind of movie action adventures, you know, all animated films is all ADR. There's no, right. There's no production in animation. It's all ADR, you know, and sound mm-hmm. effects and Foley and backgrounds. So yeah, because there's all these different layers of sound. You know, there's Foley, which is sound effects that are done on a sound stage with people walking in sync with the main characters. And I love those setting videos. Things oh, yeah, they're great. They're great. They're so cool. Mm-hmm. And then there's the background sounds like left, center, right, surround, Atmos, you know, where it goes over our heads. All of that is like, uh, you know, a separate editor. There's all the hard effects like gunshots, door closes dog barks, you know, anything that's uh, a specific sound to a specific image in a film, even if it's off camera, you know. Um, and then there's ADR, there's group, there's principal ADR of the main characters, there's group ADR of the extras that are in the movie, and um, yeah, all the production editing that has to be done on top of it. And then, and then of course, there's music, but usually a music editor will handle that. That's a, that's a lot that goes into the the simple aspect of of sound right you know that i think a lot of um movie watchers can end up accidentally taking for granted not not understanding all that goes into that's a lot well and they should they should take it for you know they should just accept it as what it is because if it's believable enough to fool them then it works yeah if you start noticing if you notice the sound then somebody didn't do their job well. Right. Unless you have a really attuned ear and you're like, wow, I really like that background sound that they put in for the spaceship buy or whatever, you know, or, or wow, I didn't, I don't buy that. But I mean, even a simple, um, when I worked on Clan of the Cave Bear, um, they had built the, the, uh, the caves out of, you know, plaster basically. So when people walked on the rocks, I'm doing little air quotes when they ro- walked on rocks, it didn't sound like rocks. It sounded like, you know, plaster. So we had to recreate all of that and then put Foley of, of rock sounds on top of any kind of production sound because it was married to the dialogue. So wow. there's all those kind of things. Like if you're on a, on a ship, you know, any kind of set that sounds tubby, you know, we, we try to make everything sound as real as, as it can, but then the real sounds will might interfere with the pr- the sound of their dialogue. And that's the most important thing to get clearly, especially yeah. for a dialogue film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned wind earlier and I wanted to know when you're working on the sound with Pirates of the Caribbean, because it's just all taken place around water and on ships and stuff. Was that an obstacle that you had to deal with a lot that the, the natural wind that comes with being by water? Well, a lot of, a lot of the, um, the scenes on the ships were done on a, you know, 
a water a water set not out on real, yeah i guess it's on real water but and i actually got to see the uh the pirate ship that they built on the sony soundstage it was in about i don't know maybe three three feet of water it was huge <laughs> huge thing and they had like gold leaf on it was so beautiful that nobody would ever see you know i thought oh they should just put that in the museum or put it out on the parking lot but yeah i mean again they you know using uh boom mics and lav mics uh lavs are you know set very close on the on the actors um and booms booms give you more of the uh ambience but if you have a a shot where you can't get a boom in close enough to record the dialogue like a, a wide master shot or something um you know you have to rely on the lavs uh, for the close-up sound so essentially it you know as long as that signal to noise ratio is good like the voice is like if maybe if I were talking really soft like this, suddenly you might be able to hear the room noise more than if I'm talking like this. Or if I'm in a club scene and I have to really talk loud to go overcome eventual music that will be there. You know, people make yeah. that mistake all the time because when it's quiet, you, you know, you're not imagining, oh, there's going to be blasting music. And I really need to be talking like this because then the music can sit at a right level. You right. Know? But, you know, people tend to go, oh, <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really great point. Um, I could think of new, like different TV shows and, and movies that I've watched where there have been a club scene and, and they're having to yell. And yeah, now thinking backwards on it, you know, kind of reverse engineering it. Yeah, they would have been not talking at, you know, in a club and trying to compete with that sound. So they're just they're acting. Sometimes they they'll put a little earbud in the actor's ear and they'll pump music into it. Oh, just wow, to make them cool talk tip. louder. Yeah. Cause they'll start out loud and then they'll get softer. And then that means you have to reduce the level of the music and that doesn't sound believable either. So it's all to just, you know, sell the believability of the story that you're telling. That's the whole point of all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so, that is so interesting with all the cool movies that you've worked on and you've done sound with. Was there ever a time where you were like, I don't know if we can fix this without it being like a really <laughs> big issue? Well, I love a challenge. So to me, um, that's why I have a, a Facebook page called Vicki Sampson Dialogue Detective. And it's all about hunting down what the problem is and then figuring out how to fix it. So I haven't I mean, there's a, there's always a fix somehow, you know, but Got it. when I when I supervise the sound on Ironweed which was a Meryl Streep, Jack Nicholson movie. Um, and it was, I think, one of my finest ones that I supervised on my own. Um, but it was such a depressing movie that a lot of people didn't want to see it because it was about, oh. you know, it was about alcoholic bums in the in the 20s during the Depression. Um, it's, it's a wonderful movie. But anyway, there was a street scene, and it takes place, of course, in the, in the 20s, a street scene with... Uh, Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep walking down a street in um, upstate New York where the movie takes place. And um, there was too much modern traffic to record, even though they were shooting really late at night. So the production mixer, the one who records all the, the sound while they're shooting, he put the mic down by their feet and shot upwards towards their mouths. Not sure why he didn't put lobs on, but whatever. Um, you know, we're not, we're not privy to that anyway. So, and they were walking on a pretty gritty street. So all you heard was like these little pops of grit under their feet while they're talking yeah. this very intimate scene. And so I 
it was about a minute scene, so like 90 feet of film, which is about like, oh, you can't see my fingers, you know, a couple inch, <laughs> inches worth of, of wound up 35 millimeter sound. And I put it down to loop it because I figured that was the solution. So Nicholson comes in to loop it and he looks at the sheets. He's like, I'm not doing that scene. He goes, that, that was like, I was, it was the night of my 50th birthday and I was drunk as a skunk and it was the best acting of my life. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, so hmm. funny. And I said, look, I'll make you a deal. Uh, I said, I will use all the tricks that I have to get rid of that gritty sound under your voice, which is not an easy task. It involves actually physically scraping off the mag oxide that's on a piece of film, making little crisscrosses back and forth with a demagnetized razor blade to reduce wow. just the sound of the grit without destroying the voice. And if you go too far either way, you had to order like a whole nother reprint of it. I mean, nowadays, oh my I, gosh. nowadays I can use that spectral thing I was telling you about and just find, right. find it and kind of erase it out of there. But back then that was our option. So I said, I will do my best to get all the little gritty sounds out if you will do your best to loop it. And of course, an actor knows if you don't do a very good job with the loops, you're, they're going to be stuck with the production track anyway, no matter what. So that's kind of what he did. He didn't do a very good job. Oh, but, no. <laughs> but fortunately, I was able to take out um, a lot of the, the grit sound. Uh, and it took me like two days, I think, to for a 90, a, a 90, you know, a minute scene to reduce, to scratch out all the little clicks and pops. And if I had to take one out in between dialogue, you have to fill it with something else so it doesn't put everything else out of sync down the line. So it was mm -hmm. like, a, it was a crazy process. But it's like, okay, you know. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot. For someone who doesn't know what a loop is, can you define that? Sure. Um, a loop is another term for ADR line because they had to, in the old days, they had to make physical loops. So they'd have like an equal equal piece of film to the line of dialogue, like a blank film. So it would go around on the, on the machine. So it'd be like, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? And then in between that, the actor would hear it and re repeat it. You know, so that's why it was a loop because it was a physical joining of like a circle of film that just went around and around and around. Um, then auto the automated part came in where we we put a, a a time code or a footage at the very first part of the modulation of a line of dialogue, and then the automated part is that it puts three beeps in rhythmic timing in front of that spot where it goes into record. And there's some actors like John Travolta. He, he doesn't like the beep, 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 beep. Hi, how are you? He doesn't like that. He liked the looping so that he could hear it, hear himself and mimic himself. Exactly. I mean, one of the advantages to ADR or looping, and you can see it in postcards from the edge. There's a sequence in there where uh, she's looping something and they kind of do the old fashioned way. Some people like streamers that come across the film. Donald Sutherland liked to do that. Um, but most most people do the beeps, but, you know, except Travolta. Yeah. He likes the old-fashioned hearing it and repeating it. But, you know, you can, you can either change your performance as long as you keep the words in sync. But even the way you say things, uh, you know, on camera uh, affects how how you sync them up, like what emphasis you put on a different syllable <laughs> can make a difference in how it loops because you're pretty confined to how your mouth moves you know 
But we also we also use it for doing voiceover, for doing narration, you know, voiceover lines. The actor isn't on the stage when they're shooting it, but the film editor will need those lines recorded ahead of time for their timing of events, you know. Mm, right, that's um, a great point. So um, when I did Frailty, which is a Bill Paxton-directed movie, they realized that um, Matthew McConaughey, who's the main character, was going to be leaving like the next day to start another movie in Ireland or something. And the film editor said, I don't have any of his voiceover. How I can't edit this without his voiceover. So they took him, McConaughey, into a trailer and put a recordist in there with him. And he, they had all the lines of dialogue. And they said, oh, well, we can redo them later. But for now, we'll just use this for temporary reasons. And uh, he said all the lines, and those are what stuck. We we never re-recorded him because he was in character, you know. He was in the moment, That's you know, cool. and it and it made sense uh, film-wise. Like to try to recreate that. Then there's the other thing that happens, which is called we call it temp love, and temporary love of of anything. Like we we would make a quick mix to to put out to a preview audience like at a movie theater like hey come see this preview if you've ever done that or like you see a preview of a work in progress basically but it's they still want to have like music and certain sound effects so you know we throw stuff in there like oh here's this the generic dog bark or a, a lightning flash or a you know i mean a thunder clap you know or music mm-hmm. and uh, then everybody gets used to hearing it over and over and when you try to change it i.e. improve it People are like, well, what's that? Well, we like the other one. We like that temp one, you know. Um, it's like if you have a favorite band and you go, you hear their record all the time, you know, every nuance and every phrasing and every time the bass hits that one note and and you hear it over and over, then you go hear them live in concert. And it's like, wait a minute, they're, they're not doing that right. You know, that's not the, that's not the way it <laughs> yeah. sounds, you know. So that's the yeah. same thing that happens with directors. We get, you know, we get used to hearing a certain way over and over and over. And then when the sound editor comes in to save the day and change the line of dialogue or, or add a different sound effect, it's like, wait, what are you doing? We liked it that way, you know, but you get used to it. And I mean, that, that happens to me too, even on my own directed movies where I, I loop something, but I was used to hearing the production sound and it was like, wait, what? Oh yeah. We looped it. Right. <laughs> Cause you get, you know, you can get used to pain. It's like getting used to pain, you know, um, you, if you have a pain long enough, you sort of forget it's there. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, you don't have to feel that pain here, try this. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, you know? So that, I think that's what happens with, yeah. uh, with dialogue from actors that, you know, they, after a while, they don't, the director doesn't notice all the bad stuff around it because I will try to find alternate takes before I choose to loop something. Cause some, you know, it's a budget thing. Some actors have it in their contract. They get three days of free ADR that they give to the movie and some of them don't. And they, you know, they have their, um, their day rate, um, you know, that if you don't get all the ADR that you need in the three days, then they start charging their day rate. Yeah. So you you don't want to make sure you miss things, but you know, choosing an alternate take has a, a good thing and a bad thing. Like the good thing is that they don't have to come in to loop it. The bad thing is it's not the performance that the director chose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at least with looping, the director and the actor have a chance to recreate the performance that they did choose. Although most people always want to make it a little different. <laughs> you 
You know, it's like when you say to somebody at the end of a take, you go, that was great. Let's do it again. And, and the actors are like, well, what did you not like? What, what do you want different? What, you know, oh, it's fine. Just do it again. It's like, that doesn't help them much, you know? Right. Yeah. There's a direction <laughs> with that. Right. Do you find that um, actors then dread the ADR process or do you find that some most actors just kind of enjoy it because it's just part of the job? Um, it really depends. I mean, there's some actors who are so good at looping. Most of the TV actors are really good at looping because they basically have to be. Um, Donald Sutherland loves looping. He'll even speak softly enough on the set, but he'll his mouth will enunciate clearly so that he could put in different dialogue later on an ADR stage. He's the exception. There's huh. not too many that like to do it that way. And yeah. when he ADRs, he goes through the whole scene. Like he doesn't just do line by line by line with the beeps. Uh, he wants to rehearse like the whole scene. So we have to put streamers on the film to show him when he's going to talk. And after a couple takes, he'll, he'll do like 20 lines at a time pretty perfectly. He's really good at that. Wow. That's um, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and there's some actors who really don't like it because they're not good at it. So, you know, it it depends. Um, like I said, on speed, uh, the actors knew that they had to do ADR because there was no way to save the production. And so they did their best, but there's a lot of actors have been burned by over zealous ADR supervisors who over program the lines of dialogue because that's their job. And they're not also dialogue editors. Like I'm a dialogue editor, meaning I edit production dialogue as well as ADR. So I know kind of what can be saved and what can't be saved. Um, and that's a, that's a big thing to, to be able to know. So, Yeah. Define um, a little bit about what that role is then, the dialogue editor. So the production dialogue editor takes all the production sounds, so the various mics, boom and lobs, and they determine what should be uh, fixed or not, or, you know, how to, how to best overlap dialogue because every angle is shot with a different background behind it. And then when the film editor cuts those together, suddenly you're hearing the difference. Every angle has a different ambience behind it. It'll be disturbing after a while. So the production dialogue editor will overlap and make smooth so that your ear doesn't notice any difference. Mm-hmm. That's the, the main role. And then if there's any ADR lines, they have to take out those production lines and fill it with that same ambience. That's why the and action and cut is such a great tool because you get actual ambience to try to get a wild track or a room tone of the crew waiting, mm-hmm. you know, while you record 30 seconds of ambience that some sound air is going to use months later. People don't want to do that on a set. But if you as the director say and action and mm-hmm. and cut with those pauses, then you get, just enough. Then you get yeah. yeah, it's I'm telling you, it's like gold. I love that. Well, that that's a really valuable piece of information. Like in Sex in the City, I mean, those women never stop talking. You know, they <laughs> talked all the time. So because you know, when you're when you're doing a scene and somebody pauses like that. There's ambience, but if somebody's talking all the time, there's not there's not even like a, a second of ambience to get from that, mm-hmm. you know. So, what are some of the mistakes that you find that that people make on set that we could train ourselves to avoid making on set, so that over in the sound department we um, have a more efficient process going on in the background? 
Um, I think one of the greatest things that a filmmaker can do on set is to let the sound recordists do their job. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Sounds obvious, but, um, you know, and also for the director to monitor the sound, because if the, um, if the sound isn't monitored, you can get into a lot of trouble. Um, if you mm -hmm. just trust your, I doing those air quote things again, if you just trust your sound person, if you haven't worked with them before, just get a set of director monitors to listen to on the set to make sure that the signal to noise ratio is good. I did a feature for a friend, uh, a few years back and she trusted her sound guy. He came highly recommended. And he, he had great voice slates. This is, you know, January 29th of, you know, uh, this is take that. And then the recordings were horrible. I mean, we, we had to do, he only had like three lobs. There was a scene where people were sitting around on a couch and he just put, there were six people and he only put three lobs on because he figured, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to turn and talk to you. And then you're going to turn and talk to that person. And so every other person was like off mic. Because, yeah. you know, and, and if she were listening to that, she would have known, but she, she didn't, she listened to like one thing and then thought, Oh, everything's fine. I mean, this is why people used to run dailies, you know, mm -hmm. after they shoot, they would run dailies and make sure everything was good while you're still shooting. You could always re, you know, reshoot if you had to. So that's one of the things, um, and make sure that, um, uh, the person you hire to do production sound I mean even I have to pay for production sound like I don't just get you know Billy Bob to hold the boom mic and you know my uh, cousin Joey to you know record on his uh, phone or something you know get people who you know it's it's worth it it'll be worth it for you to pay them well in order to get good sound because there's there's nothing like good production sound unless you're doing animation or some crazy thing where you're going to, you know, spaghetti Western or something where you're going to just loop everything, but get, you know, good production sound is like gold. It's like, uh, and, and listen to your sound person. If they say, you know, we need to hold for sound. Don't, don't get all huffy and puffy. Like, right. Oh my God, we have <laughs> to hold for sound, you know, uh, people do yeah. it. It's like, uh, it's, it, it's as if the sun was going down and, and the DP says, Hey, you know, we have to stop cause I'm losing daylight. Well, that's ridiculous. What do you mean you're losing daylight? You know, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm just trying to watch out for your, I'm protecting your sound. You know, don't, mm -hmm. don't shoot the messenger. Just, you know, hold for a second. Or if the, if the sound person says we need to turn off that refrigerator because it has a hum or there's a fluorescent, there were there fluorescent lights in here. They're adding a buzz to the track. I mean, they will notice these things because they're listening to it through their headphones as the mic is picking it up, not just what you hear in the air that your mind can then erase, you know, that selective hearing, you know, so hire good people, go to your locations, listen to the sound that's there. Um, I had some students that shot down at the uh, LA river for a scene <laughs> and they were just on like camcorders with no separate mic or anything like that. So if you can always record separate mic, always voice slate. That's the other thing that I noticed there's a big lack of because people will say, Oh, well it's all time coded slates. It's like not when it gets to us as sound editors, just say 25 Apple take two mark clap, you know, 
Um, and I can't tell you how valuable that is for us sound people down, down the line. Um, and it, when you're trying to look for something in a take uh, and you can't, you don't, they just say, take two, you know, because <laughs> that's what they're doing mm -hmm. on the set. So uh, let's see, what else? Um, well, I think the reason my mom, one of the reasons my mom got her Oscar on the movie The River was because Mark Rydell has a lot of respect for sound because he knows its potentiality and its power. Um, and it takes foresight as a director to think months down after shooting that you're going to be stuck with the sound. So he, they were shooting in Tennessee and he had enough foresight to hire my mom while they were shooting, which is hardly ever done, you know, as a post person and a separate sound recordist. They went to Tennessee and they recorded a library of sounds that were indigenous to that film. So they had so cicadas cool. in the cornfield. They had the farm animals. They had the smelting plant. They had the tractors and the trucks and the, the water sounds and all this stuff that was, you know, if, if you tried to get the regular recordist on your film to do those, they don't want to do that on their, their one day off a week, you know, like, Mm -hmm. gather sounds that were going to be used months and months later. They don't care right. about that. They're not hired to do that. You know, they're hired to do this. And yes, people get a lot of, you know, wild tracks and wild tracks are just sound, sound recorded without picture. So um, a lot of uh, the opposite is a B roll or MOS sound, mid out sound. It's called mit out sound because the German, you know, filmmakers, they said, Oh, we don't need sound for this. We just shoot mid out sound. <laughs> So it means shooting film with no sound. So a lot of B-roll, like in other words, the main actors aren't involved. A lot of B-roll is shot MOS. But I always encourage people to, if you can shoot sound, shoot sound. Because even if you're just shooting a river, a stream, of deers in the woods, there's always something that's very warm and nice about actual ambient background that, that works for that image. Even if you think it's no good, just record it anyway, if you can. But if it's just like you got to have your B-roll guy go out and shoot without the sound guy because you, you don't want to pay the sound guy for a, an extra day, that's okay, you know. But wild tracks are, are valuable, but some people overuse them or they, they, don't, they misuse them. In other words, you don't want to make your whole crew just sit around for a minute waiting while they're recording ambient room tone. You know, it's not a good use right. of time and people get resentful. So, you know, yeah. capture it. I like to tell people, you know, go through your script and write like a little list of possible sounds that you might want to record either before or after you shoot just to have them, just to be aware of them at the time. Um, and then you have a, a library of fresh and unique sounds uh, that don't come from a, a stock library of sound effects. You know, like if you watch TV shows enough, you hear like the same car door clothes for <laughs> Right. Yeah. Every <laughs> you can pick them out. <laughs> That's a really great suggestion though. Yeah. Just go through your script. Cause um, if you wrote the script, you, you know, you, maybe you put in sound things, but a lot of scripts will have capitalized words for important sounds, you know, and those are things that, you know, mm -hmm. you, you can try to get if you're shooting um, in that location or, you know, just be aware that things could be added later. They just can't be taken away. So get the, the cleanest, like don't shoot, with live music going on, you know, like if you have a dialogue scene, you're like, but we're in a club. It's okay. You know, 
no, don't have any music. Keep reminding people to talk louder than they would normally because you want to be able to put that music in there and have it be loud. But if they don't speak up loudly enough, you can't do that with the music. Then the music has to be squished underneath it a little. One of the things that I've always been really curious about, because um, I'm someone who loves you know the behind the scenes features on on movies and stuff, um, is when you're when you're watching the that kind of the making of the movie, and there's the actors on the you know the stage, or um, they're just on set, and they are going through a scene, and you can hear the director while it's being recorded, like while that scene is being recorded, you can hear them talking and kind of coaching and giving direction. What, how do you, how do you work with that as a sound department? Um, see this bald spot? No, <laughs> tear your hair, <laughs> you tear your hair out. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen them do that when they, when they're working with children because, and they'll keep the takes rolling because the minute they yell cut, they know that they have to have the social worker and a teacher and, you know, they have, the kids have to go to school oh, a certain amount of days or a certain amount of mm-hmm. hours per day. So you have a limited time with like babies and children. So they'll just keep the takes running, which drives us crazy as sound editors, because you'll have one take that maybe has five takes within it, you know, and then you have to kind of find it along the way. But um, let's see, what did I, oh, I think it was American Fighter or The Fighter that um, the director did that with, that he would always give directions, Um, as long as they don't overlap the actor. So the actor, you know, has to be aware of not talking before somebody else stops talking the same with um like two shots i mean uh, over the shoulders and and or you don't want the the off or or single sorry single like a close-up of somebody and the other actor is just out of camera range so they could feed them their lines you just don't even if you overlap dialogue with each other like an argument or something in a master shot you don't ever want to do that on somebody's coverage or their close-up because they're going to be off mic and then the main actor is going to be on mic. And if they do it enough, I just tell people just mic them both so that you have the option of overlapping. If they really can't like younger actors, I found have a hard time not overlapping when they're used to overlapping in a master shot. Uh, when it comes time for their close up, um, they can't not overlap. So I just say, just mic them, mic them both so that we can use it. If not, I mean, Overlapping dialogue is a big issue in sound. So as long as the director is, um, you know, uh, giving directions, not over dialogue, but then they're right. ruining the ambience too. I mean, exactly. so then yeah. you have to find ambience to put in place of that director's. It's just like a script supervisor who's uh, feeding lines to somebody like on a phone call or something like that. We have to take out her dialogue and replace it with ambience that has no dialogue, which we hopefully get between and and action if they do it right, or any other place where somebody is paused. So we have to take out those lines, fill it with ambience so that we can then lay the ADR line on top of it and futz it so it sounds like it's coming out of a phone or, a, you know. Yeah, but again, you have to think singularly. Like if, if, there's, if there's something that's happening and the sound is married to something else, whether it's married to ambience or it's married to a dog bark or it's married to a director cue or it's married to other people's dialogue. You can't undo it. It's like trying to take cream out of coffee. You can't do it. It's there. The only options are you have to loop everybody and then you can manually overlap them, you know, but then that gives you the control of volume, things like that. So, um, yeah. 
in the combat scenes or for Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, the, the sword fight scenes where they are delivering lines in the middle of that action, um, is that where a lot of that ADR work comes in or are there ways that it absorbs the sound enough that it doesn't get picked up by the, like the lobs, for example? You mean like, like sword hits and stuff? I mean, they may be using, you know, wooden or whatever. They're not using real swords. Well, right. Yeah. But I didn't know if that made like still clashing sounds. Yeah. I mean, they're having some impact, which then we would, what we call top or sweeten that sound with sound effects and Foley. Um, again, it depends on how much we can understand the dialogue. You know, if they mic'd it, properly then you know if we topped it with other the real sword sounds it should be okay otherwise um we might have to adr you know breathing or efforts or things like that like in the case of his dangly bangly things sometimes the costume designer will have dangly looking things but they'll be made out of material that don't make sound so that we can add sound from foley later but at least it'll be it. It won't interrupt the dialogue, right? You know, it'll be right on top of it. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, even movies that I've worked on or I listened to, I don't know how they've what problems they had or how they fixed them. You know, mm-hmm. because hopefully they fix them enough to not have to wonder how they fixed them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And and my my rule of thumb is like if you can hear it the first time through, you know, watching it you know, giving that first impression, you can hear it fine. That's, that's fine. You know, there's, there's no reason that everything has to be so articulate and be understood at every moment. You know, it's just the audience doesn't know what's important or not. Like um, the Robert Altman movie, I think his last one, um, he, I went to a screening and some brave soul in the audience said, I had a hard time understanding the dialogue, you know, because he's notorious for overlapping dialogue. And he came up with the, you know, every actor gets a lob and everyone gets their separate channel so they can just talk on top of each other and it doesn't matter, you know. So he, he said, well, go back to the theater and pay your money and see it again if you can't understand it. You know, if you watch Nashville or any of his any of his films, um, they're notorious for having, you know, dialogue going all the time with everybody overlapping. And, and my mom worked on both... Um, California Split and uh, what was this other movie that she did? It was like the first, you know, eight track microphone film. And back then we were just on film and you can, you know, you can only cut like one or two tracks at a time, not like in a pro tool session where you can have all these tracks happening simultaneously. But Pirates of the Caribbean had a lot of tracks too. Like each actor had their own mic, their own boom. Then they had a, a combine of the lob and boom. Then they had a, a, a boom of the ambience and then it was it was insane trying to edit that production dialogue yeah uh, it was challenging do you have a favorite movie that you've worked on with the dialogue and or, or you know um, sound supervising you know any any sound department role um i think well there's a couple ordinary people which won the oscar for best picture that year my mom and i did and and that one um it's so quiet it's such a quiet movie that uh, and it had so many sound problems that you would never know it had so many so like talking about locations I don't know if you've seen it ever but um, there's a scene with Judd Hurst who plays a psychiatrist and um, uh, Timothy Hutton who plays the young survivor he and his brother were out boating and it was an accident they overturned the, the other brother died 
and drown and he's feeling guilty and he tried to kill himself afterwards. Anyway, so he goes to the psychiatrist's office and they chose a location that was, and this is in the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound by Midge Costin. Um, so I talk about, I talk about this incident in there and they chose this location in an aluminum warehouse near an airport that faced the sun. So the aluminum in the afternoon would heat up and pop and crackle. And then there'd be these like oh, airplanes yeah. going by. So the production mixer to mitigate that, he turned the actual uh, volume of the record level down like 12 decibels. So of course, when we got it, we had to turn everything up again to be able to hear the dialogue well enough. And it brought up all the noise floor <laughs> with it because it's all one thing. It's married together. Yeah. So it was a heck of a time. There's nothing to hide in a dialogue driven movie. You can't put like an explosion or a car crash or something, you know, it's just ambience. Mm -hmm. So, and the, and the psychiatrist's office is such an intimate scene, you, you know, and it would, it would take weeks to edit out all the little sounds that suddenly appeared when we raised the level of the, of the yeah. noise floor. And uh, it was a very, very difficult movie to edit to make it, you know, clean like that. Um, but it, you know, it turned out well. It was just labor intensive. But I think. Yeah, God bless you. <laughs> I know, right? You look at it and you go, what? You had some wind and some birds. What's the big deal with the sound editing? You know, it's like, oh, if you only knew. Um, yeah, right. But um, I think my favorite film, well, any Mark Rydell film that I did was, was my favorite. But I loved working on, on Golden Pond with Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda. It was just such a wonderful, it was a great movie with great acting, great ambience. You know, everything was just great. And it was just so much fun to be, be a collaborator too. Cause Mark was very collaborative filmmaker as all of us should be as filmmakers, you know, right. because it, right. nobody, nobody makes a film by themselves. That's why um, mm -hmm. even when I do a lot of, I wear a lot of hats on, on my own movies um, I still will not take a credit that says a film by Vicki Sampson because I think Got it's it. very pretentious and, you know, it doesn't credit all the other people who worked on it. In fact, my mom worked on a film called The Survivors with Walter Matthau and I think Robin Williams. It's a long time ago. And they, you know, sound editors aren't even guaranteed a credit, a screen credit, even to this day, we're not, That's we're not guaranteed when it's still at the discretion of the producers. And they wanted to save time because we had a lot of people in our crew and they said, well, we just can't afford to put all the people on there. So, you know, we're just going to put your name, Kay. And she's like, no, if, if you can't put my friends who worked on it so hard, then take my name off. I don't even want my name on there. So you know what the credit was that they put on there? Kay Rose and Friends. I knew you were going to say that. She was livid. Oh my gosh. She was so upset. And, uh, <laughs> by that. Yeah. That's not, that's, that's crazy. I didn't realize, um, how underappreciated <laughs> the sound department yeah. is. Yeah. Well, it's because it's such a, um, you know, people think it's like technical, it's technical. And my mom used to tell all the sound editors, including the mixers. She loved working with young mixers so she could sort of guide them into thinking themselves as filmmakers, not just technicians, because they see us sitting at a board or at a computer now, and they think that we're technical. But when you think of yourself as like, I'm a storyteller using the palette of sound, you know, to right, tell the yeah. story. It's like, if it, is it a comedy? What can I do that's comedic? Um, you know, one of my mom's um, 
greatest movies I didn't get to work with her on because I was too young was uh, Where's Papa, which was a Carl Reiner movie. It, it's a story about this guy who's a loser lawyer, and he's taking care of his mother who's a little demented. Ruth Gordon plays the mom. You should see it. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. But my mom decided that his office, his office and his life was so, you know, such a sad sack of a guy that when he walked across his office floor, she put like a creek in it at a certain spot. She just decided that that would be funny. And so he'd walk step, 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 you know. And um, and Carl said, Kay, where, where did you come up with that? He said, well, that's brilliant. She's like, oh, I just thought it'd be fun, you know, because he's a loser and his office is old and rickety. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not like Carl said, put a creek there, but it's it's you right. as the storyteller with sound thinking about how can I make this funny? How can I make it dramatic? How can I make it scary? You know, if you look at any scary movie without sound, it's not very scary. You know, so it's the sound that makes it scary. And the mu- music helps, too. Yeah, the music, yeah, definitely music helps. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So you've already hinted at the the new documentary that you mm. are a part of. Um, tell us more. Well, um, it's it's a wonderful documentary about the world of sound that every filmmaker should see. Uh, it's called Making Waves, the Art of Cinematic Sound. It was directed by Midge Costin, who's a, the, she's actually the K. Rose professor at USC. So K. Rose oh, was wow. my mom. She's the uh, the one uh, in 2002, just two months before she died, uh, Spielberg and, and Lucas gave my mom an endowed chair at USC. That is so cool. Uh, because they, they felt like she was their mentor in a lot of ways, although she never worked on a Lucas film. She never worked on a Spielberg film. She didn't go to USC, but they respected her craft and her, you know, she was best friends with Berna Fields, who was the editor of Jaws and later became VP of, of post-production at Universal. And um, so that's how Lucas and, and Spielberg met my mom was through Verna and just her reputation. So she has an endowed chair at USC and Midge Costin is the K Rose professor. That's very And cool. uh, yeah, she has a plaque. There's a plaque about her in the, in the cinema building. Anyway, so Midge um, wanted to make a documentary about sound that everybody could understand. And it took her nine years to, work on it to finish it it's a wonderful documentary feature-length documentary that uh newsweek just named as one of the 25 best documentaries of of last year wow and um, wow, congratulations I, i'm yeah thanks i mean i'm i'm in it you know i was interviewed yeah. and uh they have clips of my mom in there and uh, walter merch and ben burt and all the all the biggies of sound um and uh terry dorman who's now the uh our sound branch uh, uh governor at the Academy, a, a dear friend of mine, um, and many, many people of sound. So I took um, my mother-in-law, who I've known for like 28 years, right? Mm-hmm. I took her to the premiere of it, and uh, and she turned to me afterwards. She goes, oh, is that what you do? <laughs> <laughs> she had like no idea. Finally, you know? now she had, hey, right. all the pieces come together. And that And that's what it does for people, and that's why I, th- I think it's such a great thing. I think it's available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I recommend it to anybody who's interested in film and filmmaking and it's not a boring documentary at all. It's very, uh, it's, it's very wonderful. It was wonderfully edited, edited by, um, one of her former student, Midge's former students, um, Turner, what's his first name? 
anyway, it's a, it's a wonderfully edited, and they had they really had to wait because they had so much archival footage from various movies. They had to wait till that became like deregulated. Otherwise, they oh. would have paid millions of dollars in in you know fees for right. to use the footage, and uh, they got some kind of dispensation so they wouldn't have to do that. But it's really great. That's yeah. so cool. I'm also in another one that they made from Ball State University called Amplified mm-hmm. about women in sound in America or something. Got it. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure it's out. And then another student did one that she interviewed me and a bunch of other women in sound. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's like a lot of, a lot of things happening with sound, which is great. But cool. I've noticed, I've noticed that not too many women are still doing it. You know, which oh. is sad to see. Yeah. Because it is pretty involving. I mean, I, I always tell students, if you want to have a life or, or a family or kids, like, don't go into sound. Because it's, it's like 24-7 post-production hell. And uh, people used to, I have two two daughters, and they used to ask them when they were younger, they said, oh, so do you want to be a sound editor like your mom and your grandma? And they're like, no, we want to be <laughs> able to see our children, you know? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, such is such is life, right? But because you know you're at the end of everybody's schedule, and uh, you know you have like the least amount of time to do the most amount of work. So, um, you know, you sometimes have to work twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's I mean it's a very tedious job too. It's not. I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably days where it just feels like you are putting so much work in. And then there, it doesn't feel like there's as much to show for it as the amount of hours that you're putting in actually are. Right. I, I can't tell you the amount of hours I've had doing, you know, creating something or fixing an ADR line where it's like two in the morning and nobody's around. I'm like, okay, good job, Vicki. I'm patting myself on the back. You know, <laughs> like nobody will know what it took to get it to look like yeah. that. That's why my, my mantra of sound or my motto of sound is if it sounds good, it is good. Mm-hmm. If it sounds good, it is good because, you know, if it sounds good, the art is is how you got it to sound that way, and that means you've done your job. If you notice that, if you've noticed that it's not good, then you haven't finished yet. So to me, it's like a big puzzle. You know, it's like here's the problem. There's this ambient noise. This, the, 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 you know, you fix it. You add some sound effects that mean something. Like even a student film, I had a one of my I belong to the women uh, Alliance of Women Directors. And we're all an offshoot of the directing workshop for women from AFI, which is a great program. If any women out there want to be directors, you should mm-hmm. apply to the directing workshop for women at AFI. And she made her film and it was, uh, it was just a little, like a store, a little store um, that, you know, you open the door and people come into the store and buy stuff. That was part. Of it. So I put one of those little bells, you know, like a little shop bell you know, ding, mm-hmm. ding, ding, when, when she opened the door oh my gosh, you, you thought I, I gave her gold or something. <laughs> she goes, just because of that sound, people know that it's a little store. And they didn't know yeah. that before. And that's just something like that came it's to me like, oh, I can just put a little bell there. And, you know, that'll be yeah, like it's the, those little details. And you don't see it. You know, you just mm-hmm. hear it. So there's a lot of little things. If you think about the meaning of the scene and the, the movie overall, you'll get ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been, you've given so many great tips and tricks and have revealed so many secrets into the magic of cinema. And this has just been so great. I've loved and have really enjoyed talking to you about all of this. Um, I have, as we're wrapping up a few last questions for you, 
And one of them is right now in life, what are you currently learning? As I have learned a ton from this <laughs> this interview. <laughs> what are you learning? Um, what am I learning? Um, well, I've, I've, I'm teaching at Cal State LA and I'm supposed to be learning like this canvas thing that you have to put all teachers put all this stuff on and I oh my gosh I think I know what you're talking about yeah it's like a portal for yeah it's yeah, a portal yeah it's a portal stuff, <laughs> and it's like I just can't it's, my brain is just not getting it but I'm always I'm always learning something I like to challenge myself like I I switched over from Final Cut 7 to you know Premiere Pro because I love film editing as well and I've edited my last three movies that I've directed basically because I'm available and I'm free <laughs> so, got it because I would really love to have somebody else edit my stuff because I think as a director um you know a, a, a film editor brings other visions and other information to it that's that's not in my brain and I think they, yeah, they can create more magic from it. in fact I just had to create a trailer from a 20 year old film that they wanted a trailer of and it's like I shot it on 35 millimeter 20 years ago. I don't have digital anything. And I was trying to make a trailer. And finally I said, I'm just not good at trailers because I'm too linear, you know. And Got so it. I gave it to this friend of mine and she just whipped out this like two minute trailer of all these disparate pieces, put music on top of it. It's like, wow, that's really great. <laughs> so yeah. so, um, so I, I've been learning new platforms. I'm learning how to shoot remotely because that's what people are doing these days. Um, and so I, I have to learn it myself in order to teach it. Um, I got to direct an episode of a web series remotely. So which was uh, sitting here in the same spot, directing actors, you know, with this thing called Filmic Pro, which turns your iPhone into a, a, a camera so you could change the aperture. And the wow. so I'm learning lots of stuff like that. I like that. And um, I'm also learning how to manage my time a little better, I think, although I'm always, I'm always filling it up with many things to do. So yeah. <laughs> just, just learning how to manage with the things that you're over managing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But you know, I'm still, I'm still, you know, ambitious. Uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken, but I'm still hoping to, you know, direct a feature film. Um, at some point I'm attached to direct a feature film and I, uh, They've been going for like, I don't know, five or six years trying to find financing for it. And I think yeah. they're almost there. So I'm sort mm -hmm. of panicking. It's like, I don't know if I could direct a feature film at this point, like every day directing. So I get exhausted just directing for a day, but <laughs> I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll have to build up to it, I guess. But Yeah, build up the endurance. Yeah, I, I get that. Do you prefer um, Premiere Pro then over Final Cut? Which one have you found um, you've enjoyed a little bit more? Well, I mean, Final Cut 7 had no support, so it, it just, it, it got too old. I liked it. It seemed very intuitive. And then when I switched over to Premiere Pro, it's like, wow, I can do that? You know, like I can, there's so many more things that you can do with it. And I, I have a great um, guy that I met who's an assistant film editor and an editor, and I paid him to teach me Premiere Pro, like for a day. You know, oh, like come cool. over, yeah. physically sit with me, to, you know, show because I'm a visual learner. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet I don't like looking at YouTube videos to learn things. Isn't that odd? It's like I'd rather read about them. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so I, I like it. It's very good. And DaVinci is another one that's, you know, people right. are learning that. Um, 
but you know it has it has problems with the post production workflow. So uh, somebody oh, just gave me a, a a project out of DaVinci, and it was like they couldn't give me an OMF or an AAF, which is what we need to translate a film editing session into Pro Tools, and without a big hassle like oh she had to create an EDL and an XML and all these things. And sometimes it just gets like ah you know. Yeah. But um yeah I think I mean right now Premiere Pro is great because I I'm you know, not planning on staying an editor, although I edit my own stuff and other little things for people. But um, I think if anybody really wants to go into ed- editing, they should do Avid. Oh. But Premiere right. Pro is the, you know, prosumer version of it, and it's it's great. I mean, titles, color correction, everything, you know. Yeah, makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm a big believer in the process of unlearning in life is just as important as learning. So what's something that you're unlearning right now in life? Um, how to not be so disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Um, what am I unlearning? Um, I think I'm, I'm letting go of the things that don't work for me or that take up time. I think I'm unlearning uh, I don't have to be such a people pleaser all the time. You know, I'm mm, old yeah. enough to say, nah, don't want to do that. You know, because mm. I tend to say yes to even little projects that, you know, take up my time and my energy. And it's like, you know, as I'm getting older, it's like, yeah, I don't have that much time and energy left. I better be you know, a little more judicial about what I'm choosing. So, Got it. Yeah. I, I like to refer to myself as a recovering people pleaser. So I identify with that very much. So makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so if somebody wants to learn more about you and your projects and step into your world a little bit more, wh- how can they do that? Where can they find you? Um, I think I'm most comfortable with Facebook. So Got Victoria Sampson on Facebook. Um, and I have the, mm-hmm. I have a filmmaker page. I have a, the, my dialogue detective page. Um, because my website, yeah, it's 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 older. Uh, I haven't kept up with it. I gotta I gotta I gotta fix that up a little better. Um, or just email, you know, bsampson at aol dot com. I'm so old. I have AOL. <laughs> <laughs> I have other ones too, but that just you know, it's on all my promo materials and stuff. I'm on. Yeah, you know, I have a YouTube channel um, that I have some of my films on. Most of them are now on Vimeo, but I've I've you know. Mm-hmm done like seven short films uh four of them over 30 minutes and some of them are just two minutes some are 30 seconds i've done spec ads and commercials as a director and i i love directing because i love to like try to take my vision out of my head and put it you know with the amount of tools we have and I, i think of obstacles as like um you know uh workarounds to get to a better solution very cool. Well, I, I just can't thank you enough. This has been so amazing hearing your stories from, again, some of my favorite movies. And oh my gosh, I'm blown away at how much value you've been able to deliver in this time together. I can tell. Oh, see, I, I worked on Blown Away too. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I can tell though that you, I mean, you're a phenomenal teacher. It doesn't shock me at all that that that's something that you do is that you, you, you teach and inspire other filmmakers and, and students and Use your phenomenal at it. This is that's perfect. It's exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I like yeah. I like passing along whatever knowledge I can I can you know that I've gathered so that people don't have to make the same mistakes over and over. Nobody has to reinvent the right. camera every time you go to shoot something. Like just a little forethought 
But, you know, again, it's something like uh, if you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what you can ask. Exactly. So, no, um, great. Yeah. Point. So and I'm happy to share the 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 letter from your sound department uh, document and a few other little yeah. handouts that I have that really help filmmakers just be aware of certain things like the costumes the locations, the hiring the right sound people, you know, all that stuff. So because, uh, you know, and you'll find out if you if you don't do that, you'll be sitting in the editing room with bad sound going, what happened? Why didn't anybody tell us right. this was so bad, you know? Yeah. yeah, where did this all go? Right, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I'm happy to send those out to anybody who wants them. You just email me, and I'll send them out. I love that. Yes. Yeah, so, so again, thank you so so much. I really can't thank you enough. This has been so great. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm always happy to share. As we come to a close, I want to go over our remember research and challenge for the week. Remember. Overlooking sound on set will only make the sound editing process that much more difficult. So don't take shortcuts to save time and daylight, but rather plan ahead and be flexible enough to prioritize the quality of the project as a whole. Research. When vetting your locations for your shoot, make multiple trips to the site at various times of day before making the final decision. This way, you can get a feel for the naturally occurring sounds that may enhance or interfere with your project and can make a plan moving forward and challenge. Go through your current script and take note of any sound that will make up the ambience of your scene. Schedule a few hours dedicated to capturing those sounds to use throughout your film. Thank you so much for tuning in. My goal for this podcast is to share the top ways to set yourself up for success with the sound of your project. To stay connected, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Life Camera Action Show and let me know how this helped you. If you have any questions or feedback, and if you'd like to explore how you can grow your creative brand, then go ahead and message me there or schedule some time at victoriaroop.com. And as always, as you build your empire, just remember, you can lead a life of fear or you can lead a life of love. So allow every decision you make to be made with love. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next week.